Christian home. Beginning in verse 18, where Paul now begins to highlight three pairs of relationships. They're all found in the Christian home in the ancient world. And that's why he attaches masters to servants. In the ancient world, often the master-servant relationship was found in the home, primarily. And so Paul annexes this in the Christian home and covers it there. We have applied that in our day, in our culture, to the employer and the employee relationship. But Paul would have the relationship in mind here of a master-servant, which applies. And so we'll look at it in that respect in our current culture today. So what I want to do this morning primarily is lay the groundwork for the Christian home. I'll probably be a little more uncharacteristic of myself. We're going to move out of this context in a moment, look at the book of Ephesians uh, that we heard read this morning, and we'll look at kind of the preamble to the Christian home. A preamble is something that is preparatory, something that comes before like the preamble to the Constitution is preparatory. It's not the law, it's not the Constitution, but it is necessary to explain it and to preempt or come before it. And so we're going to lay that foundation, and then if we have time, we'll start into the relationships, but primarily just look at this foundation this morning. I think it's important, first of all, to understand the Christian home in our current culture and its state and condition. And the fact of the matter is the Christian home is under attack in our culture. From one direction, the attack is purposed. It's intentional. People are taking the initiative to tear down the Christian home. From another direction, it is not always purposed and intentional. It's a result of taking positions from Scripture that then affects, it diminishes the roles we find in the Christian home that Paul speaks about in this chapter. So, one direction is society in the world we live in. And this attack is coming through wokeism, critical social theory, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, the sexual revolution, and the political establishment, just to borrow a word from our current culture. It's slowly infiltrating the judicial system And we see much of the cultural debate and cultural animosity has this common thread through every group. While their ideology and their purpose statement would look different, there's a common thread through each of these groups. And that is this, uh, this, which we've mentioned before. Expressive individualism that Carl Truman writes about in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. That is the perceived idea that it's the right of every human being to express their own individualism, which is defined by their inner impulses and inner desires without oppression, without criticism, and with affirmation. And the institution that stands in the way is Christianity, and in particular it's the Christian home with its perceived patriarchalism. Now, when you hear the word patriarchy in our society, it is a word that's being defined to be a very bad thing. So I think in our current culture, it's not necessary to use that word. If you use that word in society, you're going to get some angry looks. Because patriarchalism has been defined in our society to mean male domination, male subjugation, male cruelty. 
Now the word patriarch comes to the word parter in Romans 9, whose are the fathers, the patriarchs. Some translations use the English word patriarch. So it's not a bad word. And patriarchalism, if it's being expressed in domination, is sinful and wrong. Okay? But the idea that in the family home there is male leadership and there's submission that comes under that leadership in the role of a wife is against that common thread that links all those groups together. So there's an initiation, an effort to tear down anything that oppresses this individual expression. This is why transgender people and drag queens are having story hour at the library. Why? Because if you're going to tear down this opposition, you've got to start with the children. And so they're having story hour with children to familiarize them with being transgender and drag queens so that they can think for themselves and express their own individualism without parental oversight. This is why in some states, legislation is trying to be passed that says no parental consent. Why? But because each individual should be able to express their inner desires without any oppression. And parents are oppressing their children, so they say. This is why legislation is being passed. It's rooted in opposition against the risen Christ and against all that is called God. And so every time you see this kind of bizarre way of thinking, we understand what, what undergirds it all is this idea of individual expressivism that then is going to try to tear down all power structures that are believed to oppress individuals and what they want to be, like defund the police. Where does that come from? It comes from this etiology. They're in the way of us being what we want to be, so let's get rid of them. And parents, Christian parents, you are in the way, so they say. And so they're going to try to undermine, destroy the Christian home. It's in crisis in our culture. How important is it then for us to have a biblical mindset, a loving biblical view of what the Christian home is to be about? A functioning, healthy Christian home is going to contribute to a functioning, healthy Christian church. If the home is unhealthy and not functioning biblically, and I use the word functioning on purpose, because we all know in the function there's messiness and there's sin, that works through that. But when the home is seeking to function biblically, as Paul will lay out in this chapter, it's going to contribute to a healthy, functioning church. What happens in the home when the relationships are not functioning, not even seeking to function as they should? Well, that marriage comes into the church and with a facade, right? Acting as if everything is okay, everything's not okay. And relationships in the body are now impacted because the home is not functioning in a healthy way. Again, functioning. We all have times when we question our functioning ability in the home because we're sinners in need of grace, but when it's functioning and we're pursuing the pathway of biblical Christianity in the marriage, in the family, it's going to contribute to a functioning, healthy church because the church is made up of components called family and individuals. And singles, that doesn't leave you out. You're part of the family of God, and you contribute to the family of God just as families do and just as 
married people do. So on the one side, the direction is, as we know, an all-out assault. The Christian home is in a crisis right now. And it's being torn down. But the other direction is within Christianity. Within Christianity. Partly while some are redefining marriage within the canopy of Christianity and saying two people of the same gender can be married and trying to do eisegesis and and force that into the text of the Bible. That's a way in which the Christian home is being torn down because now you'll have two people of the same gender in an unbiblical relationship actually raising children, training children. So within the canopy, meaning people are coming under the canopy of Christianity and saying, hey, we're Christian, God's okay with this. And they're tearing down the Christian home as defined in Scripture. But also in positions that are being taken by Christians that I don't think are being intentional in undermining the Christian family. I don't think that that's what they think is happening. But it's coming through egalitarianism. Which means, and you'll see part of that definition we agree with. Egalitarianism says that women and men are created equal in the eyes of God. And as Christians, we believe we're joint heirs. We believe we're heirs together of the grace of life. We believe there's no one-upmanship of a man over a woman or vice versa. When Paul says in Colossians 3.11, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, Galatians 3.28, male or female, What's he saying? He's not saying we're, we're obliterating the genders. He's saying with regard to being in Christ, with regard to value in Christ, with regard to personhood, there's no one-upmanship of being a male at all in any degree. We are co-heirs, co-equal in the economy and grace of God. But here is where Christian egalitarianism takes it beyond Scripture. They say, furthermore, which we agree with that part, furthermore, Christian women, there are no gender limitations when it comes to roles in society, church, and home. Therefore, females have the capacity, the ability, and the right from Scripture to be pastors and teachers and to be heads of homes, or at least to be co-equal in headship in the Christian home. Now, I don't think these people are intentionally trying to tear down the family. In fact, I think they would say, we're trying to, to interpret it and make it right before God. But it, it undermines the family because it sets aside what Paul is saying. And when God has said about defining the roles of a husband and a wife and how those roles fit nicely together in the Christian home in a way that's going to exalt the supremacy of Christ or His preeminence in Colossians chapter 1. Because His aim is to have preeminence in everything which includes your marriage, your singleness, your family, this church, at work, and everything that we are as Christians. So Christian egalitarianism takes it too far, suggesting that women can be in roles that God has not designed them to be in. The key word there is role. Now let me ask you, when I read the text, Wives, submit yourselves to your husband. Men and women, did you kind of cringe? Did some level of guilt kind of... Eh, that word just makes me feel uneasy. 
That is from the society that you live in. That is not from God. See? You ever in public and you just feel like you, if you say the word, you said something wrong? Submission and headship are beautiful in the eyes of God. And when they come together and complement, <clears throat> which we'll see later, they enhance one another. There, there's something that they do together that cannot be done alone. In, in what God is doing in marriage, this cannot be done by a woman alone. This cannot be done by a man alone. But as the two come together, they complement. Not I in the spelling, but E. Complement, E. No, wives, you're, she doesn't say submission means compliment your husband. Well, you're such a great leader. <laughs> you're so wonderful. Not that kind of compliment, but one that brings two things together and makes one unit, one flesh, one purpose, one aim. And so from both directions, in our society or within Christianity, egalitarianism is tearing down a one flesh relationship that complements by saying that women should be in roles that God has designed for Christian men. We didn't decide this. If you were to ask me without the Bible, as far as the capacity of a woman and the ability of a woman, I'd say, yeah, she should probably be in that position, frankly. It's not based on capacity, intellectualism, or competency at all. Every man, a man, I hope, would stand up and say, Amen to that, right? It's Assigned role. It's what God has assigned to picture something about the headship of Christ and the church as they complement one another. So the, the Christian home is under attack. Therefore, it behooves us to understand what God is calling us to be in a time period where you'll be called misogynistic and hateful and domineering just trying to live out the biblical principles of a Christian home. So there's a lot at stake here for the church. There's a lot at stake in our society. While society will often say in generations past that the family unit is, is the foundation of society. And we see that foundation crumbling. But how much more in the church is, is the family a component, an element of the church that contributes then to a, a healthy, functioning church. And that's not the only thing that makes a church healthy, but that, that's part of the puzzle. So that's kind of a foundation in what we're up against and where we are in our culture. So when we look at these timely truths, we have to be firm about what God is saying and apply these timely truths or timeless truths in a culture that is different than when Paul wrote this. They had their own set of issues and problems, and some of them were same, some of them are different. But the Word of God is timeless, eternal. It is set in the heavens. And it does not change because of the culture. So next, let's look at the preamble to the Christian home. And again, we're laying the foundation. Have you noticed that Paul is, he gives us an abbreviated view of the home. And you're looking and you're saying, Paul, is that all you have to say about being a wife and a husband? Wives submit, it's fitting in the Lord. Husbands you love, don't be bitter. Let's move on. Isn't it more complex than that? 
I mean, if my wife and I were having struggles, and we do occasionally, you understand, right? Would you come to us and say, Brother Mike, Sister Peggy, read the text. Peggy, submit. Mike, you love. Now be on. Like, what are you saying, Paul? Why are you so abbreviated? It is pretty complex at times, isn't it? Because of the preamble to the Christian home. Right? Now, Paul could have said this abbreviated, abridged, because the Colossians were just doing so well in the home. I doubt that. Right? They were new to the faith. The Christian church in Colossae was the first church in Colossae. And they didn't have generational faithfulness or anything else to look at and say, how did you guys do this? So they had been living a pagan life in marriage and now all of a sudden they're Christians. How does this work? That's probably not the reason. Somebody may say, well, Paul was in a hurry. It's the third chapter. He needs to move on with it, get finished with the letter. He's in prison. And he's under inspiration. He's got time. And we know that God was inspiring him. God was breathing through him. God was guiding him so that he wrote the very words in the original language that God wanted him to write. The reason that Paul is going to emphasize the reciprocity, hard word to say, the mutual responsibilities in three pairs of relationships is because he's already laid the groundwork in Colossians 3 through 17. So if there's problems in the marriage, the first question that you don't ask, although it is a good question to start, is to say, well, am I being submissive or am I being loving? That's a good place to start. No, you ask yourself, am I putting on Christ? Am I compassionate, kind, humble, meek, long-suffering, forbearing, forgiving, loving? Am I bringing peace to the relationship? Is the Word of Christ dealing richly? And am I surrendered to Christ? Wives submit, husbands love. That's the preamble that we've already looked at. And when those things are functioning then the roles that Paul is very abbreviated here that he talks about, they start functioning. Not without sin, not without repentance, not without progress and sanctification, but they're functioning based on putting on Jesus Christ and bringing Him to the relationship. Now what I want to do is I want to leave this context and go to Ephesians 5 because Paul gives a preamble to the Christian home there And he gives it with a little different wording. And he uses different language. And we'll try to put the two together. So we'll learn a little bit from Paul as he leads up in Ephesians 5 to the role of husband, wife, children, master, servants. He gives a little more explanation about the marriage in in terms of how it complements for the husband and wife. But the preamble is similar. So we'll look at this and what we read this morning in the Scripture reading beginning in verse 15. And think of this in terms of relational life, both church and now the Christian home. Ephesians 5, 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as as fools, but as wise. Circumspect. We can think of this word circumference, around, looking all around. The call is to walk in wisdom. You see... The church at Ephesus was in a culture that was experiencing their own sexual revolution. If you read about the history of Ephesus and the god Epaphroditus and the prostitution and all that was said to be happening in and among the pagan temples of the culture. So Paul speaks to that beginning 
in the first few verses of this chapter. Let all fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness be not once named among you, as becometh saints. Neither foolishness nor filthy jesting. Let your speech be transformed too. Why? Verse 5, For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ, and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Now how are they trying to deceive them? And how are people trying to deceive you today? God's okay with same-gender relationships. He's okay with intimacy without marriage. He's okay with all these forms of uncleanness. Paul says, don't let anyone, Christian, deceive you. The wrath of God is coming on the children of disobedience who engage in that without repentance. And that's key, isn't it? There are people in this room who've engaged in that. Is there not? But repentance is the key to what Paul is saying. So don't let this culture deceive you concerning the Christian home or the sexual revolution. Wrath is coming on those outside of Christ who engage in these activities with no repentance and then trying to tell people within Christianity it's okay to express yourself. God is okay. After all, He wants you to be happy, right? Happiness does not come in a way that's sinful against God. Then Paul calls on the church at Ephesus to live as children of light because they were sometime darkness, once upon a time. Now you're light in the Lord, live as children of light. What would that mean? Verse 15, walk circumspectly, walk in wisdom. So that's the context. And we're leading up to verse 22, wives, husbands, the Christian home. So what does it mean to walk circumspectly? Verse 16, it means redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the participle points back to circumspection. So if you ask, how would we walk circumspectly as wise people? Redeeming the time. Redeeming comes from a root word, which is agora, which is the Greek marketplace. Kind of like Bridge Street, but different. The noun form is just, there's the agora. That's the place where buying and selling in the Greek market took place, usually in the center of the city. The next word that Paul could use, he doesn't use here, is a verb which is agorazo. Now you go into Bridge Street and you actually buy and sell. I guess you only buy there, but in the Greek marketplace you also sold. Every day they would go out to get fresh produce, food, and see the deals of the day. Paul uses the Greek verb here that adds to that word ex. Ex, agorazo, you can hear agora, marketplace. It means to buy something and to remove it from a condition or a situation, like a garment at Bridge Street. When you exorazo a garment at Bridge Street, you go into the agora, you buy the garment, but then you don't stay there. You take possession of the garment, out from under the possession of the retailer, and you go home with it. Paul uses the word here. We'll see this word again in Colossians 4 as it relates to evangelism, personal evangelism. So what are we redeeming here? Kairos, time, moments, day by day. To walk in wisdom means 
we're going to buy something, we're going to redeem something out of a situation or a condition, which is called time, day by day, which is your life. What are we redeeming that time from? Days of evil. Days of evil. As we learned before in Colossians 1.13, we were all under the power of darkness. We've been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. If you're a believer, you are under the sway of satanic rule. Not the kind where you participated in after-school Satan club. Nevertheless, you were under the power of satanic rule. Ephesians 2, 3. Fulfilling the lust of the flesh, desires of the mind, and we're just like everybody else, children of wrath. That's the prince of the power of the air. That's satanic rule. That's days of evil. What Paul is calling for here is redeeming the time from the grip of slavery in this evil world. In this culture, in this world, you're buying time out from under the grip and the slavery of evil because now you've been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. You are now light in the Lord and you're using moments and time to redeem them for the glory of God because you were once ingrained and captured by evil. That's no longer true of you if you're a believer. So in our Christian home, in our lives, we are supposed to be redeeming the time and buying it out of the condition of slavery to the grip of the evil days of this secular world. Alright, what would that look like? Here's a parallel, the next verse. Verse 17, Wherefore, so here's the conclusion that connects to redeeming, Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Don't be fools. Don't waste your time. Don't be unwise. Be circumspect. Redeem the time. Understand the will of the Lord. Particularly as it relates to verse 10, proving what is acceptable or pleasing to God. See, light proves things. And as light... We redeem the time. We seek to understand the will of the Lord as it relates to the family and as it relates to the church. As it relates to marriage, what is the will of the Lord? As it relates to child training. As it relates to all that goes on in the Christian family, we are redeeming the time seeking to understand what the will of the Lord is. And understanding here means to understand it, not only to know it, but to value what the world does not value. Do you value the will of God? It pleases God when we value His will and His name. Paul would say in Ephesians 1.18, you've been enlightened to understand who God is. Having your understanding enlightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling. So God has enlightened you to understand and to know His value and what His will is through the Word. Ephesians 4.17, Paul said this, I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds, having the understanding darkened, darkened. God has rescued you from an, a darkened understanding and He's illuminated you and given you light to see and eyes to see. Why? That you may know and understand God's will for your singleness, for your family, and for your entire life. How wonderful is that? 
See, the rub is the old man does not want to come under the lordship of Christ. He wants to be his own lord, his own king. Is there not something in you that wants to do just exactly what you want to do? And no parent, no government, nobody treading on me. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. That is your old man. Kill him. The new man loves to come under the lordship of Christ in the family, in the church, in the home. Redeem the time and understand what the will of the risen Christ is for me. That's a process. That's a lifetime. But it just starts with a commitment to it, right? Are you committed to understanding the Lord's will as it relates to the family? And now are you committed to moving forward by grace? To be what God called you to be, wives and husbands and children. There's nothing more glorious. Now the world makes it seem so passe. And you're so pitiful. And I feel sorry for you people. Especially you women, right? In many ways, I think you have it the hardest. In Christianity. Not because God's given you a bad rap, you understand. Just because from the eyes of the world, it looks to them like it's the worst. Right? It's not, beloved. God has, has exalted womanhood out of the grime and of the pit that the Jewish people had put it in. Divorcing women for anything. Men could put them away for burned toast. Jesus addresses that. He has exalted womanhood to the lovely place it should be. Sisters, women were not created to be a different kind of man, Kevin DeYoung would say. Isn't that a great quote? You were not created just to be a different kind of man. You're created to understand biblical womanhood and the beauty of it and what it's designed to be. Whether you're single or married, it matters not. To be a woman is to be a woman and not just kind of an altered kind of man. That's to diminish and demean womanhood. Do you understand society is demeaning womanhood? And for biblical manhood, we're all confused. What is a man? Now we have to be careful. There are books being written now that love nothing more to to go to Jesus and the cleansing of the temple. And you know, you kind of pull your shoulders up and of course, you know, you, you put your gun in your holster. I got a gun. Now I have two of them. Not against that. But this idea, we go to the cleansing of the temple and say, yeah, that's the kind of man I want to be. Have you read the rest of the story about Jesus? See? Oh yes, there is a place for protecting those under your leadership and using force if necessary. But when's the last time you had to do that, men? Did you do it last week? The present participle imperative mood is be you loving your wife. You don't ever have to question what manhood is when you look at Jesus' love. So we need to understand what the will of the Lord is so that we can redeem the time so that we can be wise and circumspect and not as fools who waste time and don't understand what the will of the Lord is. Have you wasted enough time in your life? I have. I mean, I, I, sometimes I, just, I shudder to think about it. God is good. God redeems our time. He redeems our lives. He can redeem our homes. He's the God of redemption and restoration. So if you look back at your whole life and say, it's just been a total waste of life, today it can be different. Isn't that wonderful? God doesn't say, 
yeah, I know how you've ruined it, so I'm just going to put you on the shelf. I'm not going to use you. You're, you've done. No. Redemption. Jesus is the Redeemer. He's your Redeemer. So your time, your marriage, your family, whatever state it is in right now, can be redeemed in a way that we turn back to Christ and understand what His will for the family is. And then what does He say? Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now sometimes when you see words like this, you assume that, I mean, the church at Ephesus must be filled with drunkards. (laughs) That's not necessarily true. Every time Paul addresses an issue, he may just be giving Christian instruction, so we don't assume, wow, that church had some bad problems. You go to Corinth... And that's not an assumption. Paul tells us the reason he's writing this because there are some serious problems. Now, we know in Ephesus at the love feast, there was often banqueting and drinking. And Paul's point is, when we're drunk on wine, wherein is excess or any kind of substance, your understanding is altered. True or false? Well, that's true. Your understanding for which God is using to understand Him And to redeem the time now is altered. And your decisions that you should be making to honor God, which would please Him, by understanding what He wants you to do in family now is is altered. You can't make right decisions. I just heard of a drug being used by terrorists in Hamas. Where the soldiers take it and it creates hallucinations. They lose consciousness in terms of Right and wrong. They can stay awake for four to five days and they have no remorse and no guilt so that they go right into a city and wipe it out with no care or regard for women or children. How do they do that? It alters their decision making. It transforms them into something else. And we know why they're doing that. When we are on substances that alter our understanding, We can't make decisions that please the Lord. And we know the reason that often happens is not because somebody just wants to drink a glass of wine. They want to escape reality because they're having no joy. They just want a happy hour, a happy moment, a happy time. And checking out of life brings it. And then you have the condition in our society. It's sad, isn't it? It's sad when you'll see in some of the larger cities where people are standing like zombies. They're sitting And people just walk right by them. People creating the image of God. People that have value and worth are just overlooked. And their lives are ruined because of a substance that's illegal in this case. But even can be wrecked by a substance that's legal. And even the Bible speaks about, but it's to the excess. Because it affects our thinking, our understanding. So in contrast to not being drunk with wine, whereas in excess... What? Be filled with the Spirit. Now Paul's getting closer to the family. So all this is leading into family life. All this is about single life. So you're not excluded here. All this is about church life. But he's specifically going to dive in to these relationships. Beginning in verse 22. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, this is the word we saw in Colossians 2.10. You're complete in Him. It's the word in Ephesians 1.23 where he says he's put all things under his feet, gave him to be head to the church or over the church, which is his body. The fullness of him that is filling all in all. When did Christ become head of the church? When he sat down at the right hand 
on high. That's when he actually became head. If you follow the progression in Ephesians 1. Raised from the dead, far above all principalities, powers, every name, seated at the right hand, put all things under his feet, then gave him to be head. For what purpose? That he might fill your relationships and this community with the aroma of Christ through his body. Because when your head seeks to do something, how do you do it? What do you do without your body? You want to go jogging? Try that without your body. You're going to eat? You're going to need the body. When Jesus is going to fill the universe with His preeminence, who's He going to use? His body. Just like this one here, all over the planet. Where will that aroma be, be smelled and diffused? The word means diffuse here. The verb, through the Christian home and the Christian church and Christian relationships. So the content of this filling we get from the parallel of Colossians 3.16. When you you compare the words here, singing, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, you find that in Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Colossians, making mail in your heart to the Lord. Ephesians, singing with grace in your heart. Those are parallels. So I take the content of the filling is the Word of Christ. It's the Word of Christ. So we're bringing the peace of Christ to the relationship. We're mediating the presence of Christ in the relationship with the Word of Christ. And we're bringing peace. Remember, we're not asking the marriage to be our peace or Messiah. We're not asking our children to be our peace. We're not asking anybody in the relationship except the Messiah to be the Messiah. So you're bringing peace, you're bringing the Word, and you're bringing the presence of Christ to the relationship Because you're being filled with His Spirit. Those are parallels. So this is not some nebulous thing, you know, mystical. Filled with the Spirit. No, filled with the Word. The Spirit uses the Word. And we bring it in the relationships. The experience of this filling, this aroma we talked about is love. Ephesians 3.19 Paul prays for the church, which is made up of single people and families. He prays that they would... Be strengthened with all might by the Spirit and the inner man that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith so that being rooted and grounded in love. Okay? We are complete in Christ, which means the love of Christ has been completely put in us. Perfect tense. Having been rooted, having been grounded, that will never be completed. You're attached to Him. You have the fullness of the Godhead and His love inside of you. That will never change. Perfect Greek tense. Completed action. But there's always an ongoing, continual action that flows out of the completed action. And what is that? When Christ is dwelling by faith, we experience Him in love. The love that has filled you, the love that is in you, the Christ that is in you, in you then is experienced as His love is like an aroma that's diffused through your soul and in your relationships by faith. That's why Paul said that ye might comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. 
Now, wait a minute. If it's perfect tense, having been rooted, having been grounded in love, that's complete and never changes, but the ongoing result is what? You're knowing, you're experiencing that love by being filled with the Spirit. The Word about Christ and His love fills you and it diffuses throughout your soul like a diffuser in your bedroom. That the oil and water fill the receptacle, you turn it on and it permeates the whole room. That's the imagery that Paul uses. So the filling of the Spirit content, the Word of God, the experience of the Spirit is love, love by faith. We love, we love God's love for us and we're filled with all the fullness of God. Same Greek verb. We're diffused with the fullness of God. And who is the fullness of God? Jesus Christ. And where is He? In us, by faith. And how do we experience Him? Faith is producing love in marriage, in family, in church life. So content experience. Now here's the result of this diffusing of the Spirit. The participles that follow. Verse 19. Speaking to yourselves. It affects our speech to one another. Husbands and wives now are speaking differently than they did when they were darkness. We still have the ability to speak out of the old man, right? You may have experienced that just last week. You may have, right? But now, through the new man, through the image of Christ, through Christ dwelling in you, you have the capacity. You have what is in you that's necessary to start speaking in a worshipful way because you're worshiping God being filled with the Spirit. And now, through that worship, the wife now is not what you ultimately need. The husband is not what you ultimately need. Nobody can fill that void except Jesus. And now your speech is affected. Your speech, Colossians 3.16 says, teaching and admonishing. That's your speech. You're singing in both texts, parallel singing, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. If you have melody in your heart, what does that mean? Suggest. You, know, you hear good melody, radio, piano, like plays the violin, cello. You hear a good melody, it's pleasing, it's harmonious to the ear. Grace is harmonious to the soul. And so now it's affecting our speech. We're singing in worship like we do here, we're singing with grace in the heart, we're singing with melody. There's a joy of the Lord which is our strength. Now we're giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The parallel is Colossians 3.17. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks unto the Father. When? Always. What is the expression of a surrendered life to Christ? You're always giving thanks. You're surrendered to His Lordship. You're surrendered to His providence. You're surrendered to His love. You're surrendered to His Word. And out of that worship comes thanksgiving. Because thanksgiving is an expression of being satisfied. Because when you're truly thankful, then somebody is meeting a need, aren't they? When you thank mom and dad on that birthday, and you don't fake it, thanks dad, Always wanted some more black socks. Whatever it is, right? That's appropriate. You need to say that because dad made an effort 
you know, I'm staying away from husband and wife illustrations on birthday, but we'll stay with that. You need to thank him. But when you're truly thankful, that's just what I, I needed, just what I wanted. You, it's just perfect. So a life that's punctuated with thanksgiving is a life that is looking to Christ and saying, Jesus, you always do everything right. You never make a mistake. What's touching my life right now, it's not, not a mistake from your sovereign providence. Well, there may be some sin going on, usually is in my life that I need to correct, but as far as what you determined I needed, what you allowed to touch my life, and the gifts you've given me, the gifts of the church, and the roles you've given in husband and wife, and the roles of parent to children, you do everything well. So I'm just thanking you. Thanksgiving is a life that's surrendered to Jesus Christ. And then Paul adds in verse 21 of Ephesians 5, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. There, there is a way in which we are in our different roles are submitting to one another. And we'll see later there's a way in which husbands submit to their wives without submitting in a way that they lose their headship. I'm put that on the shelf. We'll get, get back to that later. Nowhere does it say in the Bible for the parents to submit to their children or the husbands to their wives. That, I haven't found a place for that. But there's a sense in our attitudes where we can express a kind of submission the way Jesus did to His bride. So now what does Paul say? Okay, after that preamble, Colossians 3.12-17 through 17 and Ephesians 5.15-21. After that Christian preamble, now, wives, you submit yourselves. Husbands, you love your wives. Children, obey your imperfect parents. Fathers and mothers, train your children. And don't provoke them to wrath, lest they be discouraged. See, the implication of the text is training, isn't it? It's discipline, because when can you provoke them to wrath? Unbiblical discipline. Just trying to pin them down under your control. It assumes training. Servants. Come under the leadership of your masters in the Lord. Masters, be just, be equal. So Paul is now going to address every relationship in the pair, and he's not going to mediate it through the other person in the relationship. He is never going to tell the husbands. Husbands, you manage, you mandate, you make, you manipulate. Her submission. Give me a text. You will never be told to move, manage, motivate, manipulate, mandate, or make her submit. Not once. And if you ever use the text for that reason, no need to confess. I'm going to assume all of us have thrown it out there, try to get her to do right, which means what I want. Right? You ever use that text like that? Come on, I'm not the only person I hope just came out. So, whoop, I wish I could pull that back. He'll never tell you to do that. He looks at the wives and says, Wives, I'm speaking to you as your Lord. I'm speaking to you because what submission is and is not. We'll look at that later. There is something submission is not. It's not fitting to submit in certain contexts. So what does it mean to be fitting and proper when is it not proper? There is an occasion, a couple occasions when it's not proper. And what is submission doing? Is Paul so narrow-minded? He just, is that it? Is that, is that what I'm doing? No, there's something about submission that is going to work. 
on behalf of husband. And we'll look at that next time as we start into this subject. As I said, a little bit uncharacteristic of me to sort of move away from the text and do some foundational work, but I think it's very important for us to understand our culture and what's at stake because we are going to be pressured, guilted, as if our view of Scripture is so out of sync, so way off, and people will even try to use the Bible to get there. So we need to understand what God is calling us to in a loving submission, a loving headship, where love is above everything, Paul would say. Charity is ruling the day. And what comes out of that is a healthy, functioning family. Functioning, because it's always functioning. It's always moving because there's always going to be things to correct and repent. And a healthy, functioning church that's made up of both marriage and single life. They come together for the glory of the supremacy of Jesus Christ in Colossians 1.18, that He might have the supremacy in everything. Don't you want that? I know you do. Don't you want that in your marriage? Don't you want that in your family? So we'll dig in and see how God tells us this works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how amazing it is. Lord, without it, we would be lost. Without it, we would make up our own rules. We'd make up our own ways. We would just be more of the wisdom and will worship that Paul guarded the church of Colossae against. We would make up what we think a marriage and a family should be like, and we would always make it up with one thing in mind, to serve and to gratify my own flesh. Because that's what the old man wants. He is deceitful according to the corrupt desires. And Lord, we want to put him down and to resist and put on the new man. So help us, Lord, as we look into this subject. It's not a new subject for us. It's being newly attacked in ways that we haven't seen before, but it's something that's timeless and old and ancient as you are because the picture of Christ and His bride is an eternal picture. It's eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. And now you're playing it out through sinners saved by grace. So make this a reality in each life here and glorify yourself and get the preeminence through Jesus in family life, single life, church life, and in all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.